Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the show. Happy Monday. I'm Sean Trotar. Sandy Clough with me as always. The NBA Summer League wrapped up for the Denver Nuggets, who did not end up uh, qualifying for the championship game, which is uh, tonight. The Rockets and Cleveland will be uh, doing so this evening. Not that that matters all that much. But the performance for the Denver Nuggets, who started out 0-4, ended up sort of rounding into form as the the, the players that they really wanted to see, which, which of course was Julian Strother, Jalen Pickett, Hunter Tyson, and last year's selection, Colin Gillespie, uh, continued to kind of gel a little bit. In that short amount of time, uh, the Nuggets end up winning their final two games. And then today, the news breaks that Hunter Tyson makes the Summer League first team, the all-first team, the five best players. I think that's fair. Averaged 50% uh, from three from the field. Uh, six rebounds a game, had a 12-rebound game, was consistent really from game to game, even though Strother and Gillespie both had days where the, the shot wasn't necessarily falling. Tyson, by and large, was pretty consistent, and I, I think uh, you don't overvalue Summer League, obviously. I mean, the Houston Rockets are in the finals. We saw that yeah. last year. but well, As they should be. But yeah. we also know the Denver Nuggets are, are in a position where they're drafting players who can hopefully mm-hmm. – get some minutes immediately because they're drafting guys to fill in depth around Nikola Jokic and the returning starting five. So Tyson making that first team, I think, is not insignificant, especially being the third of the three picks. But I actually thought, looking at all four of those guys, none of them looked overmatched. None of them looked poor. I don't know if there's room for all four of them on the Nuggets NBA roster to start. It seems unlikely. In fact, we talked about it. It's probably... Gillespie or Pickett probably ends up on a two-way, but good performance by Tyson. What did, what did you see from the Nuggets starting 0-4, but then winning the last two, the growth of some of those players, especially as they played together? I think that's the part that maybe is the most interesting. Yeah, well, I, I saw uh, one of the games uh, for about three quarters, and I, I thought it was the best game for all four of them combined. Uh, they all played against Utah in a 96-91 loss between 30 and 33 minutes. Uh, that was Tyson's 12-rebound game with the 19 points. Uh, Strother had 21, uh, made several threes. Uh, Pickett played his game. I thought Gillespie looked good. He had four steals, was disruptive on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, of the four, obviously, Tyson, though he was hurt last year, has been around NBA basketball more than uh, the other guys have been, uh, a a little bit more exposed uh, to the pro game. But I I would say out of those four, uh, one will almost certainly get a shot at being part of the rotation. And if that doesn't happen, it will mean that Najee and or Chanchar have improved significantly. Clearly, the idea is to push them. I, I, I don't see more than two necessarily making the team right out of camp to start the season just because there aren't minutes 
for them at the beginning of the year. And, and to me, it's senseless to have people like that at the end of your bench not playing. That's for the DeAndre Jordans. Of That's the, world. the hard part because if you're and younger to sit players, on the bench you, you and do not need play. time. Yeah, you right. have to get some. You time have to on get floor. minutes to, to develop at the pace that the Nuggets would expect. This is more a matter of what these guys all look like two years from now, three years from now, when over that period of time, you might lose one starter, let's say, Caldwell Pope. And at some point, perhaps you have to choose between Gordon and Porter, but that's probably two, three years away. And it's possible that you may not have to do that if enough of these last two years draft picks, Peyton Watson included, pan out. It's You may it's be just, able to stagger it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I I think in this day and age, with the new CBA now in effect, it's going to be very hard to keep three matches. It will be. It will uh, be over over long term, over long term. Maybe for for a few years. Is Jamal Murray, by the, the way, is up for an extension. Up well. That's right. That's right. And uh, you know that the Nuggets may, if they stay at the top of the league or contending for championships for the next two or three years, you would think that's a distinct possibility. That. Perhaps they'd be willing to entertain the idea of going over that second April in the new collective bargaining agreement. Although the costs of doing that are rather prohibitive. Yeah. Uh, yes, certainly Steve. the Cronkies could, in theory, afford it. The Phoenix Suns don't seem to care about it. For example, ownership in the NBA today is richer than it's ever been from a collective point and, of and view. Even there are no owners. This isn't the late 70s. When four ABA teams came in and they all struggled financially just to survive. Even though this the Warriors, isn't by the way, your father's NBA. No. The Warriors trying to get under, uh, are getting under that second apron with some clever negotiations. But over the last couple of years, including last season, the total cost when you include the taxes, and this is in the old CBA, for the Warriors last year was nearly $500 million. So you know, you're talking about numbers here. You're right. That these are, are they numbers that owners don't want to spend? No, they don't like throwing away a couple hundred million dollars, but if this is kind of how billionaires seem to compete, and if it means they can win, then they'll do it here and there. And I think it's possible that that ownership with the Nuggets and the Avs, as long and, and the Rams uh, and Arsenal, as long as the overall portfolio is going well, uh, you continue to raise the value of it. It means time to time you have to spend a little bit more on, say, Arsenal or on the Nuggets. I think that's the cost of doing business. And give ownership credit because uh, the KSC group has not been timid about spending, especially when you look across uh, all of their teams, and it's been paying off. And I think when you see the spending then lead to titles, uh, that tends to beget more spending, or at least not being afraid of it. But but you're right, Jamal Murray will be up for a, a uh, extension soon. And when you talk about the extension, you, know, you look at the numbers. Uh, every single time somebody gets a, a new deal the way they jump, it, it makes a huge leap. You know, Mike, Michael Porter Jr. got his deal that roughly, you know, it, it actually maxes out in 26, 27 at 40 million a year, which seems, a, you know, when you look at it as a normal human being making normal human being money, ridiculous. But you go look at, a, say, a Jeremy Grant, and at the Jeremy Grant level, 40 million seems to be about the going rate. So all of a sudden, it might be that deals for Gordon, Michael Porter Jr. might not look that outlandish. In a couple of years, and who knows? But Jamal Murray is going to get that jump, and he'll be in that 40 per 
as well. And that makes it for the Nuggets very difficult because assuming Murray gets that, that 26-27 season, which would, by the way, uh, be the last of Nikola Jokic's, though he does have a player option, would have all three of those guys over $40 million at Jokic at 59 So, yeah, unless the uh, cap continues to skyrocket, which it may, it, it is going to be difficult to keep your top four guys at near-maximum contracts, and that's why it's even more important to get these players better. And I think the point you make about the G League, and good for the Nuggets for finally investing in that, they were, I believe the last NBA team to have a formal G League uh, affiliate. I think that's right. Uh, they, they got around to doing it. it. It will benefit them because you're right. In a couple of years, whether it means that uh, a Gillespie or a Pickett uh, needs to go down there a little bit and play more minutes, if it pays off for them when they have to move away from, say, a Caldwell Pope, right? Uh, it's well worth it because you're going to have to invest in this time so these guys are ready to go when you're going to need them to go. And that may be, indeed, we could be talking three years from now, Julian Strouder might need to be stepping in for Michael Porter Jr. They may they just may have to do something like that, and that means that you're going to have to find a way to get a minutes, which is tricky on the Nuggets' big league roster. And so there is going to be a bit of a cap crunch. I, I think crunch. The, the advantage, maybe, maybe, that Strouder has is that I, I could see him as your old-fashioned sort of swing player uh, who could play off guard and small forward. Uh, defense would be a challenge. Uh, I think regardless, defense is probably the hole in his game that is uh, most readily apparent when you watch him play. Uh, I, I think Tyson probably is limited to one position more or less. Uh, I, I think he's very smart, though, and there are different things he can bring uh, to that position. But Gillespie and uh, Pickett, Pickett, they are six they, three guards. They I mean, overlap. They're, they're not swing players. They overlap. They can't play multiple positions. They, they, they do in, overlap. They could in this. They, I mean, they played overlap. in the same backcourt in summer league. Well, but yes, it, no. But at the NBA I, I, I'm level, saying, that's but, but they, they they don't they don't overlap really in the in the sense that they're basically going to play the same position. Yes. I, I mean, six yes. three, uh, two guards in this league is. Uh, a rare thing indeed, although we uh, may see, depending on whether Chris Paul gets his way or not, uh, Golden State starting uh, Chris Paul, uh, Steph, Steph Curry, Curry who is as good as uh, uh, he is making threes with respect to long putts to win golf tournaments, uh, yes. as we saw Congrats over the weekend. to him, by the way. Um and, uh, and, of course, you got Blake Thompson, who's considerably bigger than than 6'3". But uh, I, I think in general, the, the size the Nuggets bring, when you're talking about Caldwell Pope and Murray and then Porter at 6'10", your power forward at 6'8", but Wayne about 250, and then Jokic, uh, who is magnificent in every area of the game, especially on the offensive end of the floor, you're looking for guys who can, this year anyway, break out in one category. And as we discussed the other day, I think that category primarily will be three-point shooting. Mm -hmm. Not exclusively, but I want to see if any of these guys jump out as a three-point scorer. 
could be, in theory, could be any of them. I think Strother seems to have more range, but, you know, if you're only making three out of every 11, whether you have NBA range or not, that's not a high enough percentage. So they're looking for a three-point shooter who can make 34 35%, come off the bench, and take those three-point shots that the Nugget bench didn't exactly specialize in last year. All, all three guys were at least decent on the defensive boards, somewhat willing rebounders, although there wasn't a lot of size there. You had Brown at 6'4", Brown at, Christian Brown at 6'6", and, and, and Green at 6'8". Two of those three guys are gone. I don't think the bench will be as good next year unless more than one guy really pops and you have two of them in the rotation. I think that could be a stretch. That's a good problem to have if it does. But you're less concerned about the Nuggets' lack of size than I am. And I I guess um, I think that's interesting because behind Nikola Jokic, uh, DeAndre Jordan is not going to play big minutes. Uh, Zeke Naji is 6'9". Tyson's, you know, <laughs> they just don't have size. And, and behind, you have Aaron Gordon, who uh, is a very physical, very talented guy, but quite frankly doesn't get big rebound numbers. I just don't see where the Nuggets are going to get boards behind Nikola Jokic, and that's oh, where I, I think that I, the Hunter Tyson I, I has the ability. I, I do. They're, they're a good rebounding team this year. Now, Jokic is an exceptional rebounder, but, I mean... It, I, I thought it was uh, clear in the in the finals anyway that Miami was hurt by uh, Denver's size and its uh, willingness to certainly they were the larger team, yeah, a physical brand of basketball. I don't see anybody pushing the Nuggets around. This is a, there's so many things about this last year's team that were different from even the best of Nugget teams over the years. The best of Nugget teams were purely, and I mean purely, finesse teams. This was a far this team more was not. team than people. This team was think, not. Yes. Nobody pushed this team around. Uh, the <laughs> it, it, Remember back in 2009 when the Nugget reputation was so solidified as a finesse team that anybody, even guard Dante Jones, right. who showed any semblance of friskiness was called a thug because wait a minute the nuggets don't push people they don't foul people they don't contest shots they 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 don't hold their position under the boards and when they 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 must be dirty if they're doing that because that isn't how the nuggets have ever played as an NBA or ABA team, they've always been a finesse In team. the postseason, Sandy, that Nikola Jokic averaged 13.5 boards. That's ridiculous. But the second leading rebounder was Michael Porter Jr. with 8.1. Aaron Gordon had six. Nobody else, obviously, above that. Uh, for Porter Jr., that 8.1 was a big leap from his regular season average of 5.5. Gordon's was about the same. Gordon went from 6.6 to 6. He was also guarding, uh, oftentimes, the best player on the floor on the other side, and so the drop-off is comparatively minimal. But do you believe that Michael Porter Jr.'s improvement there is real? Do you believe he should be an 8 
well, rebound a game guy next no, year. No, I, I mean, the, the numbers take care of themselves. It, Jamal Murray is the best rebounding point guard in the sport. Caldwell Pope, if you want to label him even as a two guard, will scrap and get his share of rebounds. 3.3 guards, per, Murray rebound. a 5.7, almost the same as Eric Gordon. Rebound. And, the, and those numbers, I think, went up in the playoffs, certainly for Murray. They did. Uh, and and so up front, yes, I, I, I think Gordon is a good rebounder. He's not a great rebounder, but they get so many easy shots around the basket, and they shoot such a high percentage. I mean, you're talking about a team that made half its shots. Do you long. think rebounding itself has been minimized in the league as as it goes more positionless, yeah, or do you I, think I that do. the Nuggets I, themselves I, don't? The, have the to only rebounding it. stat that matters to me is offensive rebounding. Defensive rebounding is just a function of whether the other team is shooting well. Well, your spacing and positioning matters. Uh, it, it, I I don't see teams certainly in this day and age dominating on on the defensive glass there are no teams in the league i don't think i mean you you have access to the numbers i mean during a, the regular season it's a fair who, point who is a team even the bad teams shot 41 or 42 percent from the field i i don't know that anybody so did. the argument is just the efficiency in general of teams in the nba in this offensive era means that, that you're not all you're, you're looking for is extra possessions because extra possessions usually mean and that, that extra would be offensive shots. rebounds and so that that's the, the the two shots the two stats that I look at uh, right away are shots taken and offensive rebounds because they're they're usually linked. And if you're taking more shots than the other side, and you you're the best shooting team in the league to start with, who's going to stop you in the regular season? When you're talking about, well, let's just look at those offensive rebounds now. You have to separate the signal from the noise. The best team in the league was Houston. The second best team was Toronto. Third best team was the Knicks. Uh, you've got to go a ways till you start getting into good teams. The Nuggets were kind of in the middle of the pack at 10.1 per game. That's actually just 0.1 ahead of, of the Lakers. So you have to be able to look at that situationally. The Nuggets a little better, yeah. 32.9 rebounds yeah. per game. Uh, but, but they're the top team sort of just overall right. rebounds. Number but, one, uh, Milwaukee. You know, two, the Lakers. I, three, I, the Celtics. I guess, four, the Grizzlies. I, I guess. I, I'm just... I think, I think still offensive rebounds more mean more than defensive rebounding. And uh, Houston misses a lot of shots, so they, they're probably teams that play Houston have a lot of defensive rebounds, too. They're just uh, the, the quality of play in any game involving Houston Amazing. last year yeah. went down. It is, but the actually Houston was uh, in the bottom half of the league, though, with 32.9 overall. and 32.9 per game. but Per game what? But, uh, rebounds, but 13.4 offensive to lead the league. So maybe what we, we should be looking at is yeah. maybe the NBA needs to get to a different stat. Maybe you need to start looking at offensive rebounding percentage well, as your total. I, I think that's, that's maybe more that's a little than bit the raw number, looking. I, I suppose. That that's more important than the raw number. But I, I don't remember too many instances this year where you were looking up at the end of a game and the Nuggets gave up 20 offensive rebounds and they only had 9 or 10. I, I don't remember too many games, at least not any games of consequence. You can, you can play badly. You can have bad nights. You can have nights where you're not emotionally engaged in the game or physically engaged in the game. You can have games like that. But they were most likely, when they lost and or played badly, they were most likely to be turning the ball over. And 
opposing teams getting extra shots that way. Right. And the Nuggets getting fewer shots because they were making mistakes. And I think that the, the few occasions the they lost in the playoffs, turnovers were usually kind of, sort of an issue. Yeah. I don't remember them losing a game where where you pointed to rebounding and said they well, uh, rebounded. You, you they did. lost two games to Phoenix when Booker and Durant had uh, incredible offensive games. Uh, Booker was even with all the points he scored, very efficient in those two games. There was nothing. Phoenix wasn't out rebounding the Nuggets and beating them for that reason. The That's Nuggets were seventh in the playoffs in offensive rebound differential, but overall in defensive rebound differential, they were number one, 4.8. That's over a rebound better than anybody yeah. else and led all of basketball in the postseason plus 6.6. That's why it was so silly that uh, there were uh, certain people who complained after game one, that well, we got lucky. Miami could have made all those threes. No, they couldn't. They, they were sh- shooting at the end of the twenty-four second clock. They were taking standstill shots. They're completely out of rhythm. Uh, it, there's a reason sometimes beyond just being unlucky. Yeah. The teams don't shoot threes very well. And with Miami, it may have been in the finals a regression to the mean. The fact that they weren't a very good three-point shooting team during the season when they went up against a team that defended the three well, and that's something else that distinguished the Nuggets this year from past Nugget teams, even very recent uh, Nugget teams, that they defended the three-point line well. Well, we'll find out. It's a few months away, obviously, but I am curious. I am curious. I do wonder about rebounding for the Nuggets. The Colorado Rockies start their post-All-Star break uh, in surprisingly good fashion against the New York Yankees. Can they dodge the 100? But we'll look at a couple of interesting wins. Only a few times you can look at the Rockies and say it. So we'll do it next on My Life Sports. Now more with Sandy Clough and Sean Drotar. Presented by Burnham Wall. Hire the winner at BurnhamWall.com. This is Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports. Treyo, 120 at-bats, does not have a home run this year. Until now. A game-winning walk-off home run from Alan Treyo. And the Rockies win this one 8-7. to seven. slider from Marinaccio. A very disappointing series if you're a Yankee fan or a Yankee in that clubhouse, in that dugout. This is a series you're playing against a team that had the worst record in the National League. That is from the Yes Network in New York yesterday as Alan Trejo hits the game-winning home run. Uh, the Rockies went 8-7 to seven in 11 innings. Five runs scored in that 11, 11 innings. Two at the top of the 11 for the Yankees. And then Trejo knocks in the all-important uh, game winners. The Rockies went 8-7 to seven and take two of three. They won Friday night 7-2 to two in what might have been their best game of the season, uh, to be completely and totally honest. And then they lose on Saturday to the Yankees 6-3 as Connor Siebel drops to 1-7 and seven on the season as a starter. And then they they steal this one in 11 
I, I guess I look at it and I, I think the the Friday game, uh, I actually I actually attended Friday's game. I thought it was maybe the best game they played all year, as I said. It really was. Uh, Austin Gomber was as good as he's been. That is not to say that Austin Gomber is is great, uh, but it was as good a game as he's pitched for. Oh, he has eight wins year. now. He does right? have eight wins. He, that was so, eight win. He's he's eight and seven on a team that on, is twelve games team. under five hundred. Right, where, where nobody's going to win. That said, games, his ERA is still over six. Right, still right, over right. six. Well, that that's right. So and they, that's, and they, uh, and they not good. generally, uh, although he certainly pitched well enough to win without all seven runs. He generally gets run support, and Freeland tends not to get run support in the way that Gomber does. Uh, therefore, Freeland is four and ten, and Gomber is eight and seven, or whatever he is. But they win. They win two of three. Uh, the the third the, the middle game that they don't play all that well. They lose six to three. No. Um, the the game yesterday exciting as fun as it is. Twice that, they tried to throw it away. That's a go either way game. Uh, you could hear the announcers there. You know, a trail of guys knit a home run all year. Happens to hit one in the bottom of the eleventh. Uh, that I'm well, not. I'm not saying it's totally luck at all. They, but the way they but those are coin toss going. games. Right. Um, the Rockies could have easily gone one and two in this series. I don't think they caught anything. I think it's uh, they're, they're playing a New York team that is quite frankly in a bit of disarray. Uh, they swing. Mm. I, you get why they replaced their hitting coach. I don't know if, if Sean Casey can fix it, but the, the, that Yankees team swings at everything. Uh, Very much problem. unlike. Highly undisciplined. And listen, the, the, the Yankees have only won one World Series since their dynasty mm-hmm. years. And Despite that, the payroll that, being where it that is. That came to an end in 2000. They won one World Series yeah. from 2001 through 2023 up to this point, and they're in last place. That's the part that's amazing. Now, they're granted, in last place. They are six games over five hundred, but they are. But they are in last in place. last place. You're and exactly right. It's been months since they played good baseball. Uh, yes, Aaron Judge's injury has hurt them because he was carrying the team offense. Stanton hit a home run in Denver on Stanton's Friday. Hit some home runs, but he's hitting just north of the Mendoza line. Uh, DJ Lemayhu isn't a factor really anymore, and. You know, maybe they can put a package together for Otani, and it changes everything. They're one of the teams that definitely has the resources mm-hmm. to make a trade offer, although certainly uh, the Angels could conceivably the wait. Angel, the Angels uh, are going to have options. The Angels will, will have other teams yeah. bidding very, very highly. And, and they don't have to take the Yankees offer because the Yankees offer is so much better than everybody else's. I'm not sure that'll be the case. Now, the Yankees could put a package together. There's no doubt. And I, I watched Otani on Sunday Night Baseball last night. Doesn't and, I mean, the announcers were saying it, but even I can tell watching the game on TV that when he makes contact, on the barrel of the bat, the sound mm-hmm. is different. And it reminded me of the sound I, I, I remember still of Tiger Woods hitting a golf ball no. international years and years and That's years an ago. Comparison. That was a different sound. And the sound of Otani, and it was probably this way with Mickey Mantle in his prime. Uh, it was this way with, uh, I think, the tape measure guys mm-hmm. and again for ted williams solid contact 
was was a regular thing. And Otani kind of reminds me of, of Ted Williams that way. They don't hit the ball off the off the handle <laughs> yeah. very, very often. They don't break bats. They're hitting the ball in the fat part of the bat all the time. It makes a different sound. Otani's just an incredible offensive player. Player, yeah, but you're even at, though uh, the Angels found a way to do what the Angels often like do, like Ken Griffey Jr., a guy that had a beautiful sweet swing, that certainly, but but he uh, and he certainly was strong. Don't get me wrong; the, the home run numbers speak for himself. But but Griffey generated it with a bat swing and a consistent with speed and a consistent plane. Uh, it is interesting, and you think about uh, the last great, truly great hitter to come out of Japan in in Ichiro, guy that's bat speed and, and certainly yeah. could catch it here and there. But Otani isn't. Otani's a straight up slugger. Oh. This is this is he he's he's got more in common with the Bryce Harpers unbelievable uh, of now, the world. He, I mean he's 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 just bombing away. He hit a shot in the ninth inning last night to bring him within one run. They ended up losing by a run because he can't come to bat every time. Right. <laughs> it isn't uh, it isn't like other sports where you can just uh, feed in the ball. Uh, but in an earlier bat, I think it was his second at bat. He hit two foul balls that he got ahead of that were just rocket shots. I mean, the, the, the miles per hour off the bat was around 115, 116 miles per hour in both of them. I mean, it just crushed him. And <laughs> I guess if, if you put him on any team, any team in the American League East, that team would win the division, assuming he, that he's dealt within the next uh, week or you two. You could make the argument. Okay. Uh, any team in the American League East. Uh, I don't know about the other divisions uh, in the American League anyway. Uh, of the National League teams, boy, you've got the Dodgers, San Francisco, Arizona in the West. The Giants are always a sneaky team to me. In, in terms of making trades, and you, like and you would assume like if you're if you're L.A., you'd like to trade him as far away from anyone you'd ever play again as possible. Right, <laughs> right, and and the Dodgers are obviously another contender right. for his services. And, you know, it's, but it's a lot you of people know, right are looking now, at Seattle. You know, maybe as a free agent destination as possible. But the Arizona's had trade him one there. bad stretch. They've lost eight out of the last Arizona ten, be and now they're place. now they're now they're in third place though. Now they're in third, place. but only two out of first. Well, I but, understand yeah. that, but they're in third but they're, place. Yeah, they lost. They That's lost not games. a good position. Uh, not, not when you're behind the Dodgers. No, 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 and the Giants too, who have been very steady throughout the season. And it just shows you in certain divisions, if, if, if even if you're in first place, you lose eight out of ten, you're you're dropping out fast. The National League Central, at least with Milwaukee and Cincinnati, is stronger than people think. Those are two good teams. Uh, Cincinnati has split its last 10 games, and all of a sudden Cincinnati's two games. And they've lost four in a row. Yeah, they've lost their last four, too. Atlanta is incredible. Yeah, Atlanta's running. And yet you put, let's say, I don't think this will happen, you put Otani on Miami, Miami's a surefire playoff team. They'll probably make the wild card anyway. Mm -hmm. But if you put them on Philadelphia, Philadelphia being in the playoffs, Philadelphia's half came out of the third wild card spot uh Cincinnati for sure uh probably in the National League 
the other teams are too far back to make a run, even with an Otani. But in the American League, if Seattle got him, and remember the sure. ovation he got at the All-Star game in Seattle, Seattle's a 500 team right now. They'd, they'd be a wild card. They'd be a wild card team if they had The Angels are six out of that final spot. The Mariners are five. Uh, Otani is a free agent at the end of the year. To get an idea of how ridiculous his year is, uh, you look at wins over a place, which is a good way to, to take a peek at it. The, the best player in baseball this year, non-Otani division, is uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. Probably not a surprise, right? Uh, Acuna has a 5.4 wins over replacement. That's extraordinary. Uh, 25 doubles, 23 homers, 58 RBI. He has 43 steals. Uh, you know, his, his OPS is, is over one, uh, as is Otani's, who's even better. Otani has a four wins over replacement, but he pitches, <laughs> where he also has another two and a half. Right. So, in other words, he has a 6.5. That is 1.1 better than Acuna. Acuna is a full run better than Mookie Betts, who is the third best player in baseball. Yeah. Imagine I mean, we that. are talking about that. That means that over the third best player in baseball, Otani is, an, is another 50% better than all but one player in baseball. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, it is... It, it it is absolutely remarkable, and the funny thing is, someone took a comparison because of this, uh, with his point in his career, with Babe Ruth, and they are uh, when roughly the same point in their career, within the same number of games, they are one loss apart as pitchers, and they are one home run apart as hitters in their careers. Yeah, well. Where did Babe Ruth spend most of his career as a pitcher Boston and as a hitter? As Boston. Right. Can you imagine Otani in Boston? With that right field porch? Oh, my. Well, it, actually, right field's tough hitting field. Straight away, right. I mean, you have to hit it right down yeah, the line. Yeah, you don't have to hit it down the it's line. A, it's the monster. Uh, he has plenty of opposite field power. That's not a problem. Well, that's what I'm saying. He tattooed that wall and hit plenty of. Shots over that wall. And he hits the ball straight away, as far as anybody in baseball right now, anyway. So, actually, Fenway, there, there's some myths about Fenway, that Fenway's a bandbox. Uh, not if you're a left-handed hitter who's a pull hitter, pure pull hitter. It's not really a bandbox. It's, it's a good clout. Yeah. Hit one now, out. Pull straight away, right, lefty at the right the center used to be, but yes, center. Left-handed hitters hit the ball the other way. Wade Boggs, right, feast at Fenway, of course. Sure, you're just bouncing it off the wall all day. Off the wall. It, it is. And Ted Williams would hit. Yeah, three forty-four hitters as he did for his a, career, no matter what. Yeah, and Otani is not of a problem, by the way, hitting uh, as we. Speak, Otani is putting together a uh, robust season of his own when you're talking about a guy's batting 301 with 34 homers and 73 Isn't ribbies something? 34 in 92 games. The OPS is 1.051. Yeah. He's incredible. slugging. Uh, it's incredible. And people put away the slugging stats now because it is sort of a weird stat, but Sandy. He's the one guy. He's slugging 665. When they're, when they're on, 
I don't miss his at bats. I, I just don't. Six sixty five. If he's coming up, I'm watching. I don't care what the score of the game is. If he's coming to the plate, I'm watching. Yeah, absolutely. I've 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 I uh, I ponied up for the not uh, many guys like that for the MLB TV app. Not many guys, and like I do that. catch myself actually watching on my phone and seeing if he's up next, and I'll switch to the Angels game. I do it. <laughs> I just want to see the man play. It's remarkable. But for the Rockies, a uh, good look. Credit where's due. Good series. It, I don't think it changed the trajectory of their season. They're playing a team that's a mess right now, despite the fact that yes, they're the they're the Yankees. I think they're off a 100 loss pace, though. They are slightly briefly. off the 100 loss pace. Uh, they now get Houston on Tuesday and Wednesday, yeah. and then they travel for three to Miami before it gets really well, I, soft I know at the end of that, the month. Three uh, at Washington. Uh, the the terrible tanking A's come to Denver for three, yeah. and the Padres. I mean, look look at this chunk. If the Rockies can't get it done. Because talking about starting next week, a week from today, Sandy, three at Washington, then six in a row, the Oakland A's for three, the San Diego Padres for three, then you go to St. Louis, the most disappointing team in baseball given their expectations. Right. Who may also, by at that point, have traded mm-hmm. Nolan Arenado somewhere, get St. Louis uh, for three in Bush. That is 12 games against four of the worst teams in baseball. Well, we'll, we'll find out where they really I know stand. of at least... At least two teams in the American League, and I say at least two teams in the American League, who this weekend were rooting very hard for the Rockies, Yo, and yeah. who will continue to root for them as they play the Houston Astros, mm-hmm. because the Astros right now are the third of three wild card teams in the American League, with only a two game lead over Boston and the Yankees, and a five game lead over Seattle. But get and this. I figure if you're within five games wild card spot. Stranger things have happened. Remember the year the Braves won the World sure. Series that they were 44 and 45 at the All-Star break. Remember October happened. Anything can happen. But for the Yankees, the, the disappointing series, as they said, the Rockies, they went two out of three. A good for them. They get Houston Tuesday and Wednesday. They have a couple of bad games for the rest of this week that are going to be tough. Then they get about a week and a half of good games. And then after that, Sandy, they got no break until, I kid you not, September. I'll just go through real quick. After the Saint, they go to St. Louis. At Milwaukee, at L.A., versus Arizona, slight break with the White Sox. Then at Tampa Bay, at Baltimore, <laughs> against Atlanta, against Toronto, at Arizona. Remember that now we're, now we're into September. are looking at their schedules and saying when they play the Rockies, they're getting oh, a break. Boy, oh boy. Uh, but congratulations. I guess you know credit where it's due. That's good. Uh, we will turn our attention to the Denver Broncos training camp coming up uh, really soon. You can almost taste it now. Where will the Broncos go? How important is it for them to get a uh, a hot start? What does that even look like at this point? We're talking in July. We'll break it all down next. Come on, let's go. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. I want to remind you, of course, this is your show as well. 303-831-1340 is the call and text line. Danny Bailey uh, in the booth monitoring that for us. And a uh, text you thought was interesting. Danny, what, do you, what have we got? This from Broncos 60 said, Sean, Sandy, this was like a playoff game. Big brother, little brother. Uh, the Denver Bears against the mighty Yankees. Both team has their fan base cheering like back in the 60s old school game. Best game for an old timer like me. 
well, especially in the '60s, the Denver Bears were the farm team for the New York Yankees. Right. So I mean, there you go. I mean, that you had the marvelous Marv Thronberry's of the world. Even Billy Martin coming through as a manager before as a manager taking over now, the Yankees. Now they weren't yeah. a Yankee. Uh, they weren't a Yankee farm team though when Billy managed. Correct. And they were a Minnesota Twins right. farm team, and Billy, I believe, the year after he managed here, became the manager of the Twins. I think that's correct. But yep. uh, the two greatest managers in the history of AAA baseball, and I think the two greatest managers in the history of Denver baseball, Denver professional baseball, were Felipe Alou and Billy Martin. And Billy was only here a year. But uh, the tiebreaker on that might go to Felipe Alou because Jim Burris, the uh, late, great Jim Burris, who was very close to Billy Martin when Billy was here, said, I believe in 1980, that Felipe Alou was the best manager the Denver Bears ever had. And somebody said, really? Better than Billy Martin? He said, yeah. And, of course, by the time Denver got a major league team, uh, Billy Martin had passed away. But Felipe Alou, oh, I, I just would have loved to have seen Felipe Alou manage here. Yeah, the Rockies. Yeah, yeah, that would that would have and been so with um, the, with his unconventional methodology. What he might have might what it might have come up with, and I, the, there's that, that like that. Felipe Lou, remember, was the manager of the Expos during the strike year of yes. 1994. And they were loaded. When a lot of people think because they had Larry Walker back they, then. They had Larry Walker. They had, <laughs> they were loaded. I mean, they, it wasn't just Larry Walker. They were loaded. Voices to Lou and uh, uh, right, uh, Randy Johnson. I mean, yep. that was ridiculous yep. and. A lot of people believe that had that season been played to its natural conclusion that the Montreal Expos would have uh, been in the playoffs and might have even won the World Series. Yeah, and instead it hastened their, their, uh, it their move. It did. It killed baseball in Montreal. That Major League Baseball. Anyway. But, yeah, that that team was uh, extraordinary. I mean, you think of their peak. You had, you had, uh, you had Cliff Floyd at first. Uh, Will Cordero, who's a very good shortstop, Sean Barry at third. Mo- that outfield was Alou- Moises Alou, Marquise Grissom, and Larry yeah. Walker. Yikes! Uh, Rondell White was still there. Was still their right. fourth outfielder. Right. Uh, you had uh, a pitching staff that, uh, even when it stopped, Ken Hill had sixteen wins. Yeah, sixteen to five. Uh, you had Pedro Martinez. Yes. You had Jeff Facero. At his peak, John Wetland was the closer uh, prior to going. Who later Yankees. went on to be the Yankee closer on a championship team. yeah i mean uh that that team was absolutely 1996 i believe mariana rivera i believe i have this right in 1996 was setting up originally John set Wetland. up for wedlin yes that's absolutely true that is absolutely right that 80, that 94 expos that's how good john wedlin was in 1990 under felipe alu when that that fell apart well Bears, you project uh, that over 162 games <laughs> yeah 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 they were good the uh, the Bears, uh, as you mentioned it there, uh, obviously a, a lot of affiliations with the Yankees in the early fifties. Then, yep, uh, six you know sixty to sixty two was the Tigers, sixty three yep. sixty four the Braves, then the Twins, of course. So yep. sixty three to sixty nine that was one of the longer chunks. Went to the Senators in seventy seventy one, the Rangers yep. in seventy two, the Astros seventy three seventy four, the White Sox in seventy five. Then another run with the Spos, uh, seventy six to eighty one. Where uh, Tim, I, I remember the strike Tim Wallach, as a matter in of the fact, early and Tim Raines. Yep. Came through. That's exactly uh, those, right. Those those Denver Bears and, teams. And, and during the strike year, uh, Expo executives uh, came to Old Mile High Stadium and 
watch the games. And, and remember, that, by the way, that was the highest level line, of professional baseball yep. in the Montreal Mile High Stadium, with, stadium. By the way, it wasn't Mile High Stadium. That was originally built for the Denver Bears. It was Bears, Bears Stadium, stadium That's right. and, and renamed. So uh, glad, glad you enjoyed that weekend series. Uh, I, I admit it, as down as I am on the Rockies right now, I did enjoy watching them play well on Friday. It's nice to see when they do uh, play well. I don't think it's going to stop the momentum at all, but, uh, but you know, off you go regardless. Uh, we will talk about the Broncos with uh, Justin Adams of CBS Colorado in just, uh, just a little bit, Broncos and Buffs. But actually, since we just have a couple minutes for the break, you mentioned it earlier. I want to shout out Steph Curry, who ends up winning yeah. the American Century Championship, the first active athlete to win that tournament uh, since Aldel Greco 23 years ago when he was kicking for the, for the Titans. Um, Steph All Curry, due respect to Aldo Greco, being a place kicker and being uh, maybe still a, the a, best guard in the first NBA. ballot Hall of Fame yeah, yeah, active it's a little player, bit different, a little, uh, bit, little bit different, and and you can see Steph, in him he he's relatively Steph, new to Steph the Curry. game, but boy, you can see his competitiveness Steph and Curry his flair for the big moment. If I mean, at what point does he decide to retire from the NBA? Uh, he, he he could at some point play he, in the senior. He could play in the tour. senior tour if he wanted to. Oh, I yeah. feel very yeah, comfortable yeah, that he could do that if he he's really wanted enough. to do that and probably compete for majors. He's he's good enough. I mean, pretty pretty now, remarkable. Uh, you know, I I it, it was more common. I remember John Brody playing on uh, the senior tour. In fact, I saw John Brody play here at Plum Creek years ago when they had a senior event there. Um, uh, Ken Harrelson was a pretty good player um but it, it it was different for those guys when they when they got on the regular tour and even the, even the senior tour but i think curry's different curry, and you know obviously curry's an athlete and he had to make an eagle on 18 they're playing the international scoring system right mm-hmm. the, yeah they the, played that stable stable for stable for modified and uh, Which encourages it encourages because aggressive you, you, play. You only you only get really penalized for double bogeys or worse. Right, they want right. you to go for it. So even bogeys don't cost you points. But they, he had to make an eagle on the last hole, and it was too bad that uh, Marty Fish, who won it in twenty twenty, player yeah. who had won it in twenty twenty, with no fans there in twenty twenty. Uh, it, it was too bad that on the eighteen t box, uh, somebody obviously intending to do this yelled during his yeah downswing right and he, and he hooked it off into the trees and ended up making a par which still should have been good enough to win curry won it with he made the eagle and it was extraordinarily exciting you get a couple <laughs> of for for an event like that and i kind of like to watch it here and there because um, you get John the, Elway the, the did well. Did, did John Elway was a top ten finisher in his sixties. Yeah, and I would probably played the best he has ever played in that tournament, and he's played it a lot over the years. And I, he was right there with Tony Romo. I think Romo finished with fifty one points, and Elway had fifty, and they were playing together. And I thought Elway actually played better than Romo did. Romo's younger, right? So hits the ball further, but Elway's better putter. Yeah. Yeah. Romo can't putt. John Smoltz and hey, Romo are you know terrific, goes. but they can't putt. You know, drive for show, putt for dough. That's how but it works. Steph Curry can putt. The the, the Warriors are going to have a couple uh, 
multi-sport athletes there because, quite frankly, if Chris Paul ever wanted to go professional in bowling, which he's which he has played yeah, as long as that. he's played basketball, uh, carries a plus 200 average. He's hosted his own tournament on yeah. the PBA Tour for more than 11 mm-hmm. years, and Paul has talked about potentially going pro after he retires from basketball because, okay, mm-hmm. he's 38. As a basketball player, that's getting up there. As a bowler, psh, he's in his prime. I want to <laughs> see. Go for it, right? I want to see how they're going to handle Chris Paul, who clearly still wants. For the to first start. time he comes off the bench for the Warriors will be the first time he ever comes off the bench mm-hmm. in his entire NBA and, career. And uh, if that happens, he will not be particularly thrilled about it. I think that's well, going to we'll be see. a tough. We'll see. It sounds like you know, but I, yeah, I, I imagine it sounds good. But when you really that's get going to it, awfully small. Yeah, although you know, if, well, and he is thirty eight, and and somebody should explain to him, and maybe he, that at this it's, point, it's, it's, it, you know, playing the first six minutes of the game as a starter doesn't affect the game because they're probably going to go with three guards at the end. They'll probably go with Curry, Paul, and you know, Thompson at the end. Play of the, game. the last six minutes of the game, be happy for that. That's more important than starting. Yeah, but you know, it's tough to it's tough to do. It's tough to make oh, that it's adjustment. An ego thing. It's it's definitely an ego thing, and it's a pride thing. and When you've never your whole career come off the bench, it's going to be tough. You can explain it to people, and they still view it as a demotion. I remember when the Nuggets made that great trade for Cooper and Nat and Lever and draft picks, giving up really only Kiki Vandaway. And Doug Moe wanted to start Wayne Cooper and bring Dan Issel off the bench. The only problem was Dan Issel heard about that, not from Doug Moe. When he first heard about that, he heard it on the radio. Yikes. And I think he might have heard it from me first because <laughs> I happened to be doing the sportscast. I happened to be doing the sportscast that day. I, I think it might have been me. Uh, that, that's how he heard about it. It's your fault. Which was probably not Still mad the best you? way to find out about it. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Okay. He, he, Dan does not shoot the messenger. Dan was... <laughs> Dan and, hey, not and, everybody and does not do that. Dan and Doug generally got along very well. That was not one of their better moments, though. We will have an opportunity, opportunity, happy Monday, uh, opportunity to talk about the Broncos and the Buffs with our, well, former Buff and football expert from CBS News Colorado, Justin Adams. There's a little bit of an overlap, by the way. Quarterbacks overlapping. Buffs and Broncos will explain next on My Life Sports.